Thank you very much, uh, and welcome to uh, our ongoing series discussing uh, the political and policy uh, developments in Washington, D.C. My name is Blake Rutherford, a uh, member of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and I am joined uh, this week and almost as always uh, by Mark Alderman, the chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and Howard Schweitzer, the managing partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. Mark, Howard, great to be with you guys on this snowy, uh, snowy day in the Northeast. Thanks, Blake. Blake. Uh, I, I, I am I am interested. Um, it, before we get into what is the the hottest topic, I think in in the country uh, beyond um, you know my NCAA tournament bracket, which is the Affordable Care Act. I want to take stock for a minute in in where we are. Um, in this administration, um, and particularly where we are in in the way Trump is is building um, his government, and I want to I want to preface my my questions to to both of you um, this way. I mean, one of the things that we have begun to see, um, and is that the Trump administration is is interested as a policy matter in contracting. Um, the federal workforce. We're, we're hearing about cuts um, at federal agencies almost across the board. Um, I want to talk about what, what that means and how much to read into that. And I also want to get your comments about Trump's appointments process, because at this stage, we've only seen that the president has made um, 20 sub-cabinet level appointments, uh, two of those um, whom withdrew, and he's got more than 1,900 vacancies um, in the administration, most of which don't require Senate confirmation. Uh, so, with that in mind, Howard, I want to start with you. Uh, what what are you what are your impressions uh, of of the president's efforts to, you know, develop his executive branch staff? How is he doing in that regard? Do you think? Break it off to as we keep saying, a, a very slow start. Uh, and it's complicating the administration's ability to get things done. What we're hearing um, as we're out and about around town on Capitol Hill, talking to talking to Republicans, talking to Democrats, but, but we hear it um, most certainly from the Republican side of the aisle because they think they're primed to get things done is they don't know who to talk to. Uh, there aren't people in place. And these guys aren't set up to to address some some key priorities, some key things in waiting. So it continues to be slow. You know, it, it's not. I think it's being overreported. Uh, I think some aspects of the administration getting up and running are being overreported. Um, but they need they need an all hands on deck crisis mentality. To staffing the government. This is, it's not acceptable. And yeah, we're only 50 days in, it takes time, but they're encountering problems everywhere you turn and it's got to change. You know, Mark, you were, you were there and I, and, and I, I sort of revert back to this. You were both there, um, you know, on, on day one of the, the Obama administration. Um, and, and, and I'll admit if you, if you line up the, uh, the achievements of 
the Obama administration at this stage versus the achievements of the Trump administration at, at this stage, they are markedly different. And I wonder if, in your opinion, due to Howard's point, um, are they are they hampered by an ability to to get things done? And is that a consequence of of a poor transition, or is it is there something else at work? Do you think that is slowing well, the hiring process? Yeah, I think like it's all of the above. Actually, you start at the beginning. They did not expect to win. We all know that. They therefore did not set up a government. We all know that. Uh, President Obama did, for that matter. President Bush did uh, years before Obama did. They began in a hole, and they uh, have violated one of Howard's favorite rules about being in a hole. They've just kept digging instead of stopping not only did they start in a hole because of no meaningful transition, but they then proceeded to have exactly the crisis mentality that Howard's talking about, except it was focused on true crises, mostly involving the president's tweets and his first national security advisor's conduct, and of course, this entire Russian interference in the election, which uh, is another hole that just keeps getting deeper. So I, I think that it's it's going to take a real effort to start staffing up this government, and with the distractions that they're facing, I'm I'm just not sure that that is going to happen anytime soon. Now, if you're hoping that they don't get as much of their agenda done as uh, they might otherwise. Uh, they are certainly succeeding in shrinking government, but they're doing it at the top where they need people to implement their plan. They look, it's, it's, it's more, it's more than just accomplishing their agenda. You know, there's one political, there's one confirmed appointee at the defense department, the secretary. Um, and, and, I think the bigger concern, like you need people in place to deal with real crises, right. uh, non-self-inflicted crises, and and it's a concern. And and look, I I've been there, um, I've been there trying to staff up a a program, a historic program under crisis conditions. It's really hard, but I also know that it can be done, and you need a, a kind of battleship mentality. You need people um, doing the blocking and tackling of, of hiring, and you need people to make make some darn decisions. And, and they well, they need to get their act together because, Mark, there's, but it, you know. It begins, Howard, at the top in the sense that you keep saying, and of course you're right, and you are the voice of experience on this, you need people to do this and people to do that. The people they need to hire the people are not in place. This is far more than there's only one deputy at defense. There's nobody in the White House to make this happen. Reince Priebus is managing 
the crisis du jour, Steve Bannon is with some considerable success implementing his destruction of the administrative state fantasy, but nobody's actually paying attention to the operation of the government. And I don't know who they have there to do that. I I think for that to happen, the president is going to have to bring in somebody. And he attempted with Anthony Scaramucci to get that done. Not sure that he would have gotten it done had he made it, but he didn't even make it through the appointment process. So I Look, I hear you calling there are for more a... People, there are more people there than, than you think. Um, but the... You know, there's like, and, and look, right this week, and we'll get to it next, I'm sure, the Affordable Care Act, everybody's talking about it. But there's so much blocking and tackling of government that goes on below the headlines. So much happens, or doesn't happen. And it's not, it feels like something like that is a total eclipse of the sun. It's not. This is a huge government. It's a sprawling bureaucracy. So much, so much has to go on. And you're right. Like if you're X of the national security apparatus, if you're, or maybe including that, if you're anti Donald Trump, then I guess you're happy that they're not. You're obviously happy that they're not staffed up and, and ready to go. Um, but but look, it's better for the country to have a fully functioning government, pro con whatever it is. It's better for the country well, that to have predictability coming out of Washington and they're just they're missing an opportunity. Howard, I want to I want to elaborate on that because you know, one of the one of the interesting um sort of circumstances that 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 this administration put itself in um was that it was going to, you know, change the way Washington was was run. Um, and I think we're we're seeing some of that. The president's issued an executive order, um, in essence, calling for a wholesale review of uh, of the executive branch um, in the context of considering what ways to make the government more quote efficient. We know what that means, um, and we have seen um, the the president look at look at that branch and think that changing the way Washington does business certainly means um shrinking uh the size of government. Now he's not the first not the first president to come up with it. Bill Clinton exactly. shrunk, shrunk the size right. of government, you know, to its lowest levels. So I, I, I'm not suggesting anything anything necessarily novel there. Um, but in terms of of sort of the point of view of the executive branch, I, I wonder what what you make of of those efforts um, and whether the lack of sort of forward progress on hiring is perhaps in some ways purposeful. No, no, not at the appointee level. I think it's. I think it is uh, a little bit of bumbling and, and, and what Mark said earlier, not being ready to transition um, into the, into the presidency at the appointee level and really not understanding 
government and what you need to move the needle. But it's not not at the appointee level. It's not purposeful. And look on the on the agenda of making government more efficient. Yeah, we do know what that means. The government needs to be more efficient. The government is terribly inefficient. The executive branch is is uh, moves at a snail's pace, and people are sick of it. And and so. Yeah, it means a smaller federal workforce. Guess what? There should be a smaller federal workforce. I mean, it's absurd in some respects. And that's an area both where Trump can do some real good. If he gets some people around him that understand the mechanics of how to do that, a lot of this is mechanics. But also, I think it's expectation that people that that voted for him have. And I don't think that there is any diminished enthusiasm among the people that put him in the presidency today relative to when they voted for him on November 8th. But if we're two years, if we're in 2018 and, and or 2019 or 2020 and, and things haven't happened, you better bet that there is going to be diminished yeah, enthusiasm. So people voted, it going. people voted for Donald Trump. All sorts of people voted for him for all sorts of reasons, of course. But one of the reasons that some people voted for him was that he sold himself, and he is the leading salesperson on the planet. He sold himself as a successful businessman. I agree with you, Howard. 50 days in, the base hasn't punished him yet for not bringing business practices to the White House. But he has not brought business practices to the White House. I see no evidence to suggest that he ever will. And I think that is one of the many moving parts that people over time, not 50 days in, but 250 days in, are going to start expecting some delivery on. And and this is one this is one that uh, I don't expect him to succeed with. He's brought in businessmen. He brought in Carl Icahn, yeah. whose contribution to the administration. Oh, he didn't so bring far. in Carl Icahn. He didn't bring in Carl Icahn. He gave him a ceremonial position. He brought in but he, but he allowed he allowed Carl Icahn from his ceremonial position to repeal a a regulation that was bad for his oil interests. And and that's, that's the, a policy judgment. That's a policy judgment. That's not that's not, not a business judgment. Practice. I think you should. I think you should have a new rule. I think just like he repeals two regs for every new one that's put in place, he should bring in somebody that knows government for every person he puts in there that that is a business person, but that doesn't. You know, a Wilbur Ross. You may, he can do a lot of good, but he doesn't. He has spend his life in and around government and he's got to have people they've got to have people around him and look i know people that have been in the running for for different slots or under consideration for different slots that that do know government and and right now i think there's a little bit too much of a of a litmus test in terms of kind of yep. um loyalty to trump and i think that will fade with time conversely I think way too much is being made of things like the U.S. attorney um, resignations or firings, whatever you want to call them. Like, that's just the normal course of government. And, uh, you know, this... Go ahead. 
Yeah, I want to I, I want to come back to the U.S. Attorney because I I, I think that that there is a there. There is an issue at least bubbling up out of the Southern District of New York that that may have some relationships to to the administration. I want to talk about the posture of 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 the former U.S. now former U.S. attorney um, in New York and what that means politically. But I, I want to I do want to stick with the with the with the theme of of challenges that that come from the the sort of lack of experience, building on Howard's point, um, lack of experience and knowledge of government, because one thing, and Mark, you you touched on this earlier, and it's and it's and it's certainly appropriate, I think, to discuss because we've we've seen just an interesting um, rationale coming out of coming out of uh, the White House over the last 24 hours, which we know that you know. Not long ago, the president uh, woke up and took to Twitter and accused the former president of wiretapping him during the during the campaign, which which really sent, I think, um, ripples across Washington. Um, certainly, an unprecedented accusation um, historically. And since Mark, they've they have really struggled to to figure out what their narrative is, in part. Because from an, a sitting sort of on the uh, you know in the in the back row so to speak, um, you know staff isn't willing to to challenge the boss here um, even when the claim is is unfounded and Republicans organize basically on Moss to say look this is this is this is an untrue allegation you still the best you get from the White House is well. That's not the president. Really didn't mean wiretapping. He meant right. surveillance via microwave, which is what Kellyanne Conway said. Um, I wonder what what you equate is that is that inexperience or is that just Trump exercising what is believed to be his business acumen, which is my way or the highway. He made that clear um, during the campaign. Well. <laughs> It's the emperor's new clothes is what it is, and there's one thing that's clear, and there's another thing that's not clear. What is clear is that what you see is what you get, and Donald Trump is going to continue to conduct his presidency in this manner. For 48 hours, I was lectured by a lot of my Republican friends, one of whom is on this phone call, that the president actually read a teleprompter speech articulately in Congress, and there was the pivot, which of course lasted until he woke up early on Saturday morning, and now that's been the dominant story and the dominant uh, focus in the White House. And and it is clear that this White House is going to have a very, very hard time getting done all the things that Howard appropriately says they need to get to to staff up this government in the national interest, not just for their agenda, in the national interest. It's going to be hard if they are running around trying to defend the indefensible, which is, of course, what those tweets were. What we don't know yet 
is at what point the Republicans on the Hill say no mas, en- enough is is enough, and we just we just can't back up this. We can't have this guy's back any longer. You know, we have the Ryan tape that has surfaced with the speaker essentially saying that before the election, and now there's the continued Breitbart war on Ryan. And we we will see. We we don't know where that line in the sand is, but I believe that we're not going to see a different president than we have seen. We've seen the same man as a businessman, as a candidate, and now for 50 days as the president. What what I don't know yet is when people on the Hill and elsewhere are going to say, wait a minute, the emperor has no clothes. That's Howard, what we're I wanna, waiting to find out. Howard, one of the interesting um, developments as well was the in, in the context of the wiretapping claim by the president was, was in essence to encourage Congress to launch an investigation um, into, into those claims. And we know that Congress... Um, has been interested in the relationship between Russia and the elections and and certainly the hacking of of both national committees. Um, what what do you make of of that that strategic decision? Um, and and do you sense that 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 was the administration um, really sort of aligning itself with a strategy or was that something that potentially uh, presents problems for them down the road? I think it was damage control. So with that in mind, Russia is not going away. um, And Sean Spicer's daily press briefings not only have the attention of a of a whole lot of people, I think his his name ID is is very high, um, but it's now clear that the president watches them every day um, and blocks out time on his schedule uh, to watch them, which leads us to um, the issue that will dominate uh, press briefings for at least uh, the next several days, which is the unveiling of. Um, I will say House leadership's uh, replacement plan for the Affordable Care Act. And Mark, you you worked on behalf of passage of the Affordable Care Act back in um, President Obama's first term. Um, doesn't really take much to uh, to to I think conclude that their plan landed landed with a with with a with a resounding thud after uh, the CBO's um, estimates came out and then news of that the White House estimates were even worse right. than the CBO's estimates. Um, I, I, we can get into the we got into the nuances of what the House plan looked like last week. Um, so I would encourage anybody to to certainly listen to to last week's call online. But let, I want to talk about the sort of the politics of this because Mark, you you did set well, up um, this notion of well, when do House Republicans turn on Trump? This presents a dynamic of how long does Trump 
stick with this plan? Wanted to get your thoughts. Well, you just said what my primary thought uh, is, and that is I at least am not going to let you get away with calling it the House plan. This is the Trump-Ryan plan. The president enthusiastically endorsed it. We know from our work, yours and mine, Howard and Blake's, that the White House was actively involved in the approval of the plan before it was released. This is in many ways, by the way, Secretary Price's plan when he was in Congress and and working with Paul Ryan on this issue. So at least as of today, this is the Trump-Ryan plan. The question you asked, Blake, I think is a very... uh, astute political one, which is how long is the White House going to leave the Trump brand on this plan? I think not very long is the answer. There are already indications from the White House, several of the top officials, that that as with all things Trump, this is just a an opening bid and it's subject to negotiation. I don't think the Speaker Uh, and the Republican leadership in the House necessarily see it that way. So I think that wedge is is getting uh, driven. And and what is interesting, uh, and for the first time in 50 days, even a little bit encouraging for the Democrats is, the Democrats aren't doing any of the heavy lifting here. You've got your senator from Arkansas, Blake, Tom Cotton and Rand Paul and Dean Heller and others, and by the way, it only takes three for this not to happen in the Senate, you've got the the fiercest opposition to this plan coming from Republican senators, and that is a difficult dynamic for the Trump-Ryan plan. Howard, your thoughts? Yeah, Yeah, I guess. Washington is all about ownership, and these guys are setting each other up. Remember, remember the, our rules, of, our, our laws of nature. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The House hates the Senate. <laughs> the White House hates the Congress. The Congress hates the White House. Even more than Republicans and Democrats hate one another at times. And I think what's going on here is an attempt to, to lay blame. Ultimately, you know, the Republicans, when this, if this fails, let's assume it does, will try to push the blame as a, as a big picture political matter on the, on the Democrats. The House is, is going to pass something, I believe, and will um, lay that at the feet of, of the Senate. Um, the White House, yeah, unclear. I, I think they're hedging their bets. Mark, I don't disagree that. This is, in some respects, their plan, but I don't think Trump, I think they're, I think they've got their toe in the water. I don't, they certainly haven't gone all in, all in on this yet. And so I think the politics are really interesting. At the end of the day, Obamacare is a failure and, and, and it's a financial failure. And I think the end of this movie involves the implosion of Obamacare and then picking up the pieces on a bipartisan basis as opposed to some 
piece of legislation really making its way out of this Congress. Mark, but I, I want to get Howard, I, I think the die is cast. To, by the way, we can debate some other time whether the Affordable Care Act at large has failed or whether it is the health insurance exchanges, which are just one part of the Affordable Care Act, which have, in fact, failed. They are not working. That That is true and clear. But the die politically is, is cast. The Republican Party owns health care. Washington is about ownership, as you say. And the Republican Party owns Washington by taking on health care, which they, of course, had to do after all the fake promises to repeal it on day one for seven years. They had to do it, but they now own it. This is not even whether anything passes or not. It is no longer Obamacare and it is no longer the Democrats problem because it is the White House, the Senate and the House, all bright red, all Republican, pointing fingers at each other in trying to blame somebody else for not being able to fix it. So well, I, yeah, I'm I not congratulate sure that that's the way the politics play out. I'm not sure that that's the way politics, the politics of this play out at the end of the day. It, it There's is so much. Well, it, it's the way it's playing out in these town meetings that folks are going home to. We'll see if anybody at the end of some day is going to hold the president accountable for not even proposing a plan that does what he promised. He, of course, promised something different than Ryan promised. And we have a plan that doesn't even but purport to do what the president promised. I, I do want to get into the to the politics a bit more at the state level um, because it's not just it's not just um, Republicans in Congress who have come out in opposition to this. Republican governors, particularly Republican governors in states that expanded Medicaid, uh, have come out in opposition to this. And Mark, you highlighted Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, who has been appointed opponent of this plan and um, nationally sort of set himself up um, to oppose Paul Ryan intellectually and I think to oppose Republicans politically um, insofar as saying some very specific things about don't walk the plank here. Um, But his the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, also a Republican, uh, a House impeachment manager, um, a former member of Congress, uh, official in the Bush administration, uh, also opposed to this plan, came out in opposition to it a couple of days ago. Um, so, and he's not alone. And these are these are these are not lone voices, and these are not moderate political voices. No one, I think, would 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 confuse Senator Cotton with being a moderate Republican. Um, and so, uh, Howard, how do you grapple with, with the politics out in the states um, where you have Republican governors saying this, this plan, whether it's the Trump-Ryan plan, however it gets branded to, your, to y'all's discussion about ownership, at the end of the day, 
how do you, how do you reconcile those politics? Do you think? Depends what and, state you're talking about. It's, well, okay, it's my, let's states. let's start with Arkansas, where Trump won. Trump at, received sixty percent of the votes. I mean, one of his largest margins of victory in the country. Um, I mean, the point is, I think, is that well, what? is that you? It's not. It's, it, I guess the question I'm I'm, I'm asking you um, is this isn't Washington centric. This is state centric as well because Medi- Medicaid expansion is a state issue. Um, and when you've seen dramatic drops in the uninsured rate, stick with Arkansas. Its uninsured rate's been cut in half. Um, as a result of the Affordable Care Act, and primarily as a result of Medicaid expansion, uh, it, it, I think it presents a dynamic that perhaps um, Paul Ryan, being representing one small congressional district, um, may not have thought through, um, and one that Republicans in the Senate, representing an entire state, have a better perspective on, um, which which presents. Of course, he's thought it through. Of course, he's thought it through. He made, he's making the political calculation that they have got to put forward a repeal and replace bill. They simply have to. And I think at the end of the day, he's okay if it doesn't pass because he's going to go. He's going to try to blame that on somebody else. I think well, that's the Blake, political calculation that's going on. Paul Ryan. Mark is offering a bargain, and I'm going to back up and say Donald Trump and Paul Ryan are offering a bargain in the American Health Care Act that Tom Cotton and Asa Hutchinson are rejecting on behalf of their constituents in Arkansas. The bargain they are offering is we are going to trade coverage for millions of Americans. Forget whether the CBO estimate is spot on or off by 50%. If it's off by 50%, you are still talking about 12, 13, 14 million Americans, and twice that if the CBO estimate is, is more accurate. The White House estimate itself was 26 million Americans losing coverage. The bargain that Trump and Ryan are offering is we're going to take coverage away from 20 million Americans, but we're going to save you all kinds of money. If you're rich, we're going to give you back some of the taxes we've been taking. And if you're about reducing federal spending, we're going to do that by stopping all this money going into the states through Medicaid. And we're offering you a bargain, smaller federal spending lower taxes, and we're going to knock a bunch of poor people, 20-some million, off of the insurance rolls. Asa Hutchinson and Tom Cotton are saying no. Except they're not, Mark. (laughs) They're not. not, Because it's not going to pass. Well, no, no. I'm saying – Blake was asking why Tom Cotton and Governor Hutchinson are against it. And I'm saying – and by the way, it might pass, it might not – But what I'm saying is the reason that an Asa Hutchinson and a Tom Cotton, who otherwise have no use for anything that happened during the eight years of the Obama administration, are so loud and clear in being against this is 
they are saying down here in Arkansas, we don't know about what's happening anywhere else. Down here in Arkansas, we are not buying that bargain. We'll deal with the federal spending and we'll deal with the higher taxes. We'll address all of that otherwise. But you're not taking coverage away from all these these constituents of ours. And they're they're positioning themselves politically as well. This thing is a political football and and everybody is lining up it's all about getting reelected. Yeah. And yeah. everybody's lining up around their reelection and that's what's going on. And I think at the end of the day that the Democrats that <laughs> at the end of this process Obamacare is still going to exist, and that the country, which by and large isn't satisfied with the system, is going to look at what we have and where we are and still blame President Obama for getting us into this morass in the first place. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. I I think it's already owned by the R's, and, and if it doesn't change... You have a big problem inside the Republican Party, and we're all talking politics here, and I'm as cynical about the whole thing as the next guy. But I do think there are actually some of the people involved here who care about health care coverage for their constituents, not just about the vote. But on the political level here, if the Medicaid expansion is not rolled back, there are red, red states, Texas, Oklahoma, and on, that are being punished for resisting Obama and for not accepting the expansion, while the rhino states get all this federal money because the Republicans in Washington didn't repeal the Affordable Health Care Act. So they... They are hard-pressed down there, whichever way this comes out, to keep Republicans happy. You know, it's funny because I'm, you know, I'm certainly interested in, in, in where the pulse of the country is. And, you know, one of the things that, that we've seen is that there are aspects of, of, of the Affordable Care Act that Republicans like, um, you know, uh, Gallup poll released not too long ago, 59% of Republicans um, want to keep the provision that prohibits insurance companies from denying coverage uh, to patients with pre-existing conditions. Uh, 56% of Republicans want to keep uh, the provision that allow those younger than 26 to stay on their parents' health insurance plan. Um, and 59% um, <clears throat> of Republicans um, want to keep uh, the provision requiring businesses with more than 50 full-time employees to provide health insurance. Um, I mean, there's, uh, there is a lot about this that complicates the politics because, you know, when you're talking about nearly 60% of Republicans nationwide liking certain provisions, I think that that presents a calculation. Um, I'll be interested to see, and I'll, I'll be interested as this, as this, um, as the discussion of the Affordable Care Act continues, whether whether there is any whether there is any life to the theory that that putting forth a plan, even if the plan fails, is is enough to win. 
Um, I, I, I tend to think that 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 we'll, we'll probably be coming back to a quote that President Trump made, which was, if we don't pass something, um, then it's a bloodbath in 2018. Um, and so, I'm, you know, whether the calculation was this is that bargaining chip uh, or bargaining, this is the, the sort of opening move and we'll, we'll negotiate our way out, um, seems complicated if, if, Howard, your theory is right, that, that this is very much about cost cutting and not coverage. Um, and that's, that's a pretty easy dividing line. Yeah, that, that quote, don't put that in the same bucket as wiretapping. How about that? Well, wiretapping led to a congressional investigation. I think that I think that that the one thing to consider about about the political challenges of the Affordable Care Act, and would it be interested in your response, is is that you know for seven years we have heard um, that the first thing the Republicans will do is repeal and replace Obamacare. It was going to be the first thing that President Trump did, um, and we've got we've got a, we've got a bill. It, it seems to stand no chance of passage um, in the Senate, uh, which generally means it's by all consequence dead on arrival, although there may be a ceremonial vote in the House. Um, but 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 I think the thing to 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 watch um, is whether that's a, that is enough politically, whether that's it's enough to to just put forth a plan um, or whether whether you see something come out of the Senate, Rand Paul's got a plan, for example, um, that maybe maybe picks up steam with the White House. Be interesting to see uh, whether whether something like that is possible. Yeah, there's certainly political consequences. Whatever happens here, and time will tell how they play out. I, I think we really need to look at healthcare through a generational lens, as opposed to um, this presidency or that presidency. I mean, I think it's it's probably. Um, a number of administrations down the road where this actually gets worked out and resolved. And we're going to need some, some, some divided government and some crisis to come to the right resting place on, on Obamacare. I don't think, you know, well, the debate that that's going on is no pun intended, really. I think, I think healthy. And, and this is the way, if, if you step back from what the politics of the day-to-day, -day, you know, this is what is supposed to happen. Congress passes a bill. It gets rolled out. It gets executed by the executive branch. It works or it doesn't work. They debate reforms. Maybe they pass new legislation. Maybe they don't. Eventually, they've got to tinker with the system. That's, that's what's going on here. If we look at this through a 25-year lens as opposed to, a four, an eight, or a twelve-year lens. I think, I think it looks, it looks very different, and something comes out on the other end that, that works out, and that's that's the way that I see this playing out in the in the long term. But Mark, do you sense that? Do you sense well, that, that where we where we stand is 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 tinkering, or do you sense a, a fundamental shift? People seem to come down on both sides of that. Would love your perspective. Fundamental shift, Blake, on healthcare policy. Yeah, sorry, on health care policy. Yeah. No, what is being proposed is is not tinkering. It is a fundamental shift. It is the repeal, not replacement. It is the repeal of a program that expanded Medicaid for more than 10 million Americans, 
and it is the repeal and replacement and repair and and reset of the health care exchanges. That is not a fundamental change in policy so much as it is a re-engineering. But on Medicaid, make no mistake about it, it is a fundamental on uh, uh, switch off switch change from expanding health care coverage for poor Americans to pulling it away again. And and I agree with Howard that this is a generational debate, but I I think as a political matter it goes it doesn't stand alone. It's one more hip bone connected to the thigh bone thing where it it looks like today that one more promise that the Republicans made when they were trying to kick out the Democrats and ultimately succeeded on November 8th, that one more promise isn't going to be kept. And the question politically isn't so much who gets punished for not dealing with the Medicaid expansion. The the question is how many how long can the Republicans owning everything in sight in Washington, how long can they go without delivering on any of their promises? And and we will we will find out. Certainly, they can go 50 days. There's been no no retribution so far, but we'll we'll see if if they can go two years without delivering on promises, because nothing nothing being proposed is doing anything for the people who put Donald Trump in the White House. And I, I think the the broader political consequence for the president, which is why I raised it initially, how long does how long does the president stick with this plan is is if there if the if this is a two year process and there is no there is no progress um and the only thing hanging out there is is this this current plan where for example if you're um 64 years or older your premiums go from $1700 what you're responsible for goes from $1700 to $14600 um, that's going to matter in Florida. That's going to matter in Arizona. That's going to matter in Pennsylvania, where you have three of the largest older populations in the country. Um, if they don't get anything done in 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 two years, is there a Republican Senate left? Is there a Republican Congress left? Um, and and what does that mean for the president's broader prospects for reelection? So I think. Um, the the politics of this are fascinating because once again uh, we stand to see potentially a presidency uh, intertwined with health care, um, just as we saw with President Obama's administration. So look, we're just getting we're just getting into this, um, and I think that that we'll have a lot more to say about it. Hopefully, uh, we'll bring some other other people into the discussion. Um, as we we see this from both the private sector vantage point um, and from uh, the perspective both um, in the in the White House and and from Congress, so looking forward to that ongoing discussion. Um, think it will be will be interesting and hopefully um, a value add to everybody who's taken the time on 
on this snowy day to to listen to our call. Uh, before we go, I think um, you know the all important question um, that everyone's been waiting for is, Mark Howard, have you filled out your NCAA tournament brackets? Well, I have certainly filled out the national champion. Now I have to work backwards and figure out exactly how Villanova repeats. <laughs> I, I knew exactly who your national yeah. champion would and be, Blake, Mark. Arkansas, one round. I'm taking. I'm taking your <laughs> Razorbacks only one round. It, 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 it's it's easy money, Mark. Um, they're they're going to be about an even bet when they go off in Vegas. So um, you, you should take them. They're they're a good team. Um, I know you followed them very closely all season, so you know <laughs> you know the ins and outs of them. But a good team, they will match up uh, with the North Carolina Tar Heels in the second round. Right. Probably not going to get that done. Um, and for betting purposes, for betting purposes, since I do have the Tar Heels going all the way and avenging their their last second loss ah. uh, last year. Um, I think the Tar Heels get it done. Well, anyway, a little bit of humor to end our to end our call. Um, I uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Mark Howard, thank you as always for your for your perspectives and your insights. You can listen to this call and all our all our previous calls online. So um, again, thanks to everybody for listening, and and we look forward to, to doing another one of these calls soon. Thanks.